You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. I've got Ben Folks on the Skype machine. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, I come to you this week basically uh, from voluntary isolation. Okay, well, I appreciate you being willing to do that. I think that in the the plagues to come, we're going to need plenty of people like you. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate the uh, the compliment. My wife got sick over the weekend. My daughter got sick over the weekend. We kept both of our boys home from school today just to be on the safe side. As you know, and frankly, as anyone who listens to the Co-Main Event podcast knows, I've been suffering from a lingering cough for, you know, three, four weeks here. So I'm not feeling quite myself either. So here we are uh, in the house hoping everybody starts to feel better. Does it? Are we entering a situation here where maybe my uh, my questions last week about coronavirus are going to turn out to be oddly prescient? Is that, or are you going to be your family going to be Montana patient zero here? Well, I hope not. We'll see what happens. I, like I told you before we started recording, uh, it doesn't seem like over at the Missoula Montana walk in clinics the health professionals there are uh, too worried about coronavirus. It doesn't seem like yeah. we are fitting the criteria right now. So, uh, we're keeping our you fingers to be crossed. A little worried though. Don't you? I mean, just a little, just like, give me a little bit of a, like not panic, but let me see the concern about coronavirus in your eyes when I come to the walk-in clinic. Yeah, no, I mean, well, that's all you can see of them. Cause they got those masks on so that they're going to have to be doing some emoting there with the eyes. That should be part of the training. I'm just, that's just me adding things to the medical curriculum, but I think I'm right. No, I, th- I think you are too. I will tell you what the biggest bummer is, is that I had to cancel my trip to the Arnold. Oh no. Yeah. So, uh, not going to be making it out to Columbus this week to, uh, hang out with 22,000 athletes from over 80 different countries. What, what's this going to do to your gains though? Your sick gains. I'm I mean, concerned. My gains have been in question for some time now, and frankly, they will continue to be in question. I don't, I mean, I feel like you're going to fall behind on new uses for kettlebells. You know what? Uh, I feel like kettlebell today, my subscription to kettlebell today will keep me up to date okay. on all those. Yeah. Well, that's a reassuring thought. All right. You ready? Let's get started with this here. Uh, don't forget, everybody, that you can go out and get yourself a co-main event podcast logo t-shirt right now over at CottonBureau.com. You can also get Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts. We got Dundasso t-shirts for sale over there. They're always available on demand all the time. Whenever you want them, just go over to CottonBureau.com today and drape those old bones in some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from our guy, Simeo. Stockholm-based producer, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash CMEO. That's S-E-E-M-I-O, CMEO. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, oh, flyweight, what are we going to do with you? And in round number two, Adesanya versus Romero is this weekend, and we'll be honest with you. We like everything that's happening here. And in round number three, Ben, did you know that Wiley Zhang's nickname is Magnum? I did not. Isn't that interesting? You think she loves Magnum P.I.? 
Well, I, I hope that's it. Or does that's she the, drink giant bottles of champagne? I think the best possible scenario here is that she unwinds between training sessions with the DVD collection of the entire Magnum PI series. While drinking giant bottles of champagne. Okay. Maybe we'll find out this weekend at UFC 248. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Uh, that uh, Skype listener mail is even creepier than normal. Yeah, it's weird not being able to see your just dispirited face throughout this entire thing. Well, imagine me as just particularly dispirited then. Yeah, okay. I can picture it. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our old friend, the cheeseburger walrus. He writes, is it me or did Dundasso just bite uh, Ion Kudalaba in the ass? <laughs> appeared the fake, he appeared, he appeared to fake the stanky leg and the ref bit. After the ref stepped in, Kudalaba immediately passed the what the fuck test discourse. I don't, is it Dundasso to pretend to be wobbled? I don't think that's Dundasso. I mean, I don't know if it, that goes quite far enough because you are technically not breaking the rules. Like that's right. perfectly within the rule set. As we found out this weekend, though, it, it comes with a certain amount of its own uh, risks. Somebody in my MMA mailbag for The Athletic asked, if that's going to be your strategy where, hey, I'll pretend to be hurt so that the guy will rush in trying to finish me and then I'll be able to get him, maybe you ought to give the ref a heads up beforehand yeah. that that's something you intend to do because it does seem like maybe Ian Kudalabra outsmarted himself a little bit here but it's still a terrible stoppage like no matter what you could see Kevin McDonald being way too quick to kind of rush in and stop a couple times before he actually stopped it and even if you thought that the guy was as hurt as he appeared to be. I mean, he was still throwing punches back. He was still in the fight. It is a bad stoppage, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, it looked like one of those stoppages where uh, the ref interjects himself to the point where he figures he has to stop it. Like, yeah, he can't, like, he can't go back on it now. Yeah, like he physically put himself so deep into the action that he feels like he's got to stop it. And then once you know, once you grab a hold of the guy, there's no going back. Yeah. Yeah, but Ian Kudalabra did get absolutely, totally fucking screwed here. As did we, the fans, because that was going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, they they packed a whole lot of living into that 38 seconds. They did. I mean, I, I guess if you are also, if you're going to do the fake stanky leg, maybe part of it is that you don't need to get yourself kicked in the head quite that many times, right? Like <laughs> if you're going to do the fake stanky leg, you don't also want to be getting kind of getting tuned up on the feet, right? Like you kind of, there's a fine line, I guess you would need to walk there. Yeah, but I mean, he's not going to believe a stanky leg out of nowhere. Like, there has to be something kind of backing the bluff. Sure, yeah, no, there has to, to be an exchange. Him. You don't want to be doing the stanky leg on the way down to the cage. But see, I think that this is the one of the examples that really proves how eternally useful the what-the-fuck test really is. Because he passed it immediately afterwards, capable of asking in a clear and cogent manner, you know, Maybe not in the exact words, but in so in so many words, what the fuck, Kevin McDonald? Yeah. And that really showed you like, OK, bad stoppage. He was definitely still capable of fighting there. Kevin McDonald needs to go home feeling a little bad about that one. Yeah. I wonder if you if you are the referee, like as you are stopping it, I wonder if like in your mind, you're sort of like, oh, I'm going to hear about this one. Yeah, you have to be right. I mean. Have you met us? Have you met us, the <laughs> MMA community? You would have There's to have no not way. been paying attention 
to underestimate yeah. our willingness to let you hear about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he's, he knows the way that it, the MMA community is going to react to something like this. And, uh, if anything, maybe just the weirdness of the whole night and the fact that this wasn't one of the bigger fight cards that everybody's paying attention to, to begin with, he kind of got off easy here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, I guess if you're going to make one of the worst stoppages of recent memory, you might as well go ahead and do it on a fairly low profile fight night card down there in, in Norfolk where maybe yeah. not that many people are going to be watching. Yeah. If you're going to fuck up, fuck up in Norfolk. That's, that should be the city's <laughs> motto. Put it on a t-shirt. Next question this week comes to us from David Lotteray, who writes, Chael Sonnen was recently out here hashtag just saying stuff, claiming Conor McGregor is actually the champ, champ, champ because he won the interim belt. That's just being silly, right? But it got me thinking, what significance should interim belts have? If you win the real belt, nobody cares about the interim. But if you lose the unifying fight, we still say that you're the former interim champ, a la Dustin Poirier. So is Chael kind of right? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, I still say my go-to explanation is that the interim belt is nothing more than like a token that you can hand in in exchange for a title fight with the actual champion at a later date. Like that's what it that's the purpose it served. And when you think back about people who have been interim champs but not the actual champ, we don't regard them as having been the champ. Like you don't think of Carlos Condon as former UFC welterweight champion, do you? Uh, maybe, maybe sometimes I think that just the, the, the interim belt ceases to exist. If you convert, convert it into the undisputed belt, then we but all, you, then we all forget that you were the interim champ because you just right. became the regular champ. I, I think like, I'm, I think I'm more apt to remember that, for example, Dustin Poirier was the interim lightweight champion than I am to remember that Conor McGregor was what the interim featherweight champion, right? He wasn't, well, I mean, he was, yeah, but, uh, well, I, or was he? Did he have the interim feather? I don't even know anymore. See, but the thing is, like, if we have to put the interim into our explanation, we're already saying you weren't the real champion. And if we're saying that, then we can't really count it among your championships. Like, you can't kind of have it both ways. It can't have an asterisk when we talk about it in one sense. And then if we want to look back and, like, elaborate on your trophy case a little bit, that then we forget the asterisks. That doesn't work for me. Well, you know who you should not tell that to? Who? Dustin Poirier. Yeah, I'm not going to tell him. Because remember, I, 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 I kind of made him mad when I interviewed him for that feature that I wrote about it, him leading up to the Habib fight, not on purpose, but because we were talking about the interim title. And I was trying to say, you know, some people don't feel like uh, when they have won an interim title that it really means anything. They think that, you know, I still have to be the champ to be considered uh, the actual undefeated champion. I still have to defeat the, the champion. And I was speaking generally, but Dustin Poirier thought that I was speaking specifically about his interim title. Like as though I was saying, hey, Dustin Poirier, your interim championship doesn't mean anything. So he got a little prickly and I had to explain, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. I've misspoken here. Uh, what I meant was more generally, other people have said. So we smoothed it out. But uh, for a second there, it was touch and go. Do you think maybe he might have been feeling a little sensitive about it just because in in his heart of hearts, he knew there was something to that criticism? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like Dustin Poirier doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. I think he was just like uh, and maybe this was, you know, as we talk a lot of, about like uh, psychology and people trying to kind of uh, get themselves in the mental space that they need to be in to 
go into these fights and to like face off with somebody like Habib Nurmagomedov. Maybe it's possible that Dustin Poirier was just sort of, uh, you know, he felt like he needed to consider himself the champion of the world to, to go out there and fight against Habib. I, I, I don't know. I just know that, uh, when I talked to him, he was, he was, uh, pretty clear about the fact that he already considered himself the world champion. Fair enough. Next question this week comes to us from Frank Otterbean, who writes, Jessica Penne just had her USADA suspension reduced. While I understand that the current USADA system is unfair to fighters of less renown, I do find pointing out this unfairness a convenient way to gloss over a fighter's violations. Penne first popped in 2018 with the basic explanation of, I don't do PEDs. What had happened was I was having problems with training and recovery, so I went to the doctor and he gave me PEDs and I took them, but I don't take PEDs. Uh, Penne blamed her recent, her latest violation on the morning after pill, which USADA went on to test and found no correlation between it and the banned substance. If Penne uh, was Vitor, I think more people would be calling bullshit on these claims, but USADA's arbitration system is stupid uh, but because USADA's arbitration system is stupid, somehow a potential cheater is getting off with a feel-good story. Dis- discourse, please. Yeah, that's that's not a an unfair assessment of the situation. That we do seem like I mean, USADA has done this to itself, really. Yeah. That it got us to a point where we hear about a USADA like suspension. Somebody wants to come out and challenge it, and especially if there's somebody lower down on the roster and somebody who we do not just already kind of regard as either under a constant cloud of suspicion or somebody who has given us good reason. To, you know, if, if this same situation happens with like UL Romero or somebody who looks super jacked, already we're going to be like, okay, well, we knew somebody could not possibly be that way normally. And then when it happens to somebody lower down on the roster, we're already willing to think of it as a potential abuse of this big bureaucratic system against somebody who doesn't have the power or the means really to fight back. And so uh, we do naturally jump to the fighter side in, in situations like that at this point, I think. Yeah, I think the the most pertinent overall point is not necessarily whether or not Jessica Penne uh, has, quote unquote, gotten away with something here, because I think Clearly, if you look at her public statements around this situation, she does not feel that that is the case, like regardless of of whether or not there was a a, a meaningful or purposeful ingestion of, of PEDs, like clearly she feels feels like there's been a, a an unwarranted adverse uh, effect on her career here, obviously, like just the way that she's acting about it kind of uh, displays that, you know, at every turn, I think that like the most pertinent point is that like, we've reached such a bizarre place in drug testing where it used to be, uh, you know, as the general public, we sort of regarded any positive test as a positive test and any explanation from the athlete as sort of like an excuse or belly aching or some, uh, attempt to hide the truth. Now we've been around so many different twists and turns with this thing, man, we don't even know what to think. So like if somebody tests positive for something and they, you know, they go to arbitration, they have all this, uh, uh, you know, reasons for why they might've tested positive. They can blame it on a supplement, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like it's just gotten a lot more murky, which, which was frankly not the thing that was supposed to happen when you invite, yeah. uh, advanced drug testing into the sport. So it's, it's, but it, it, that's been the outcome. And so like, I look at the Jessica Penne case, just as the prime example of, of uh, you know, the modern state of the dr- of drug testing, where you look at almost every case, and unless it's it's clear JPD, and you're just kind of like, well, I mean, who knows, really? Who's to say for sure? 
But see, maybe that was TJ Dillashaw's real mistake. It's just give us the thinnest possible veneer of an excuse or something else that we can blame instead of going out when you're JPDN and then everybody, there's no doubt left in anybody's minds. And then you got to come out there with your arm in a sling and make a video where you cop to it. Man, you got to look at everybody else's situation and be like, ah, if only I could have found a way to dope where I could just, I could blame it on something. Like there was, if there was just something, everybody's in a forgiving mood right now and I fucked it up still. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Sam Payne, who writes, with the recent flyweight debacle, I was thinking, do we put too much emphasis on the stuff around the fights rather than the fights themselves? The fight was excellent. All the surrounding fallout doesn't necessarily have to be of concern to the consumer, does it? If fighting is a personality-driven sport, and we are led to be- as we are led to believe, does it ultimately make a difference if your favorite fighter is fighting for a belt that the UFC themselves claim is a marketing tool, or that the fight means... Uh, or what the fight means in the context of the division. Can't we just advocate for dope matchups? Boxing seems to have mostly transcended the idea of belts. No one cares what belt someone wins. Rather, they care when two notable fighters are fighting. If we ever get to the same place, or will we ever get to the same place in MMA? That's an interesting take. I mean, because I agree, especially with this particular fight, that if you can just kind of forget all the surrounding stuff, and I mean, you'd have to forget it all. And just you just tuned in, you dropped out of the sky, and you just tuned in and watched ESPN Plus as the first thing you did landing on Earth, and you saw this fight. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, fun fight with a lot of fun action for as long as it lasts. But I don't know how we can really do that since the, some of the times the thing that makes these fights exciting is the context yeah. is like what we're fighting for and the stuff that you know about each person, and that's why it matters at all. Otherwise. It's just like you're taking any two random humans, throwing them in a cage and seeing if they could beat each other up in a fashion that you find entertaining. I don't know if that's really what we would actually want. Yeah, I think that there is room in the sport for both things. Like clearly one of the things I like the most about mixed martial arts is that it does oftentimes create these linear narratives, especially because you've got the UFC, which is sort of a strong centralized force in the sport and it is able to to maintain this this control over the sport. So, you know, you don't have a hundred different middleweight titles. You essentially have one middleweight title, sometimes two, uh, and all of the people at 185 pounds are vying to one day become that one middleweight champion, the one who rules them all. And so you have this sort of built-in storyline, this built-in narrative for fans to follow. And to me, that's a big part of the of the fun of the sport. And I shudder to think that we would get to a, a a point in MMA where it's where every single thing is just sort of like a uh, a contextless fight night scrap, right? Where because that's kind of what UFC fight nights have devolved into for the most part is that most of the fights are contested between these people who uh, don't, or at least outwardly, don't have much at stake. Obviously, the fighters want to win and et cetera, et cetera. But like, just from a consumer standpoint, you look at them and you're like. Hmm, two random people fighting on in Norfolk on a Saturday night, and maybe the fight is good, and, and that's uh, all that it has to offer. To me, like the, the saving grace of those fight night events is that your main event is supposed to have a little bit more, uh, you know, implications to, what, to what's going on. So, like, I, I would like to think that we could keep the narratives while at the same time 
you know, being able to engineer good fights that don't necessarily have all that story. I think every once in a while you get kind of a super fight situation or a fight between two engaging personalities where you can just have the fight and it doesn't necessarily matter what else is going on in the, in the scope of those divisions. But like to me, the, the, those championships are still meaningful. The stories around the fights are still meaningful. Uh, it's just that sometimes like you get in the case of Davidson Ficaredo versus uh, Joseph Benavides, you kind of wish you could forget some of the stuff that was going on around the fight. Yeah, and if you are really looking for contextless MMA, where just two random people who you don't know or care or anything about get in there and beat each other up uh, with a high degree of skill, the constant Russian MMA that is going on at all times every single day should be right up your alley. Yeah, you can find it. If that's what you're looking for, you can find it. Yeah, couple dudes with uh, you know Ringo Starr haircuts and matching beards are going to go out there and beat each other up. And afterwards, you won't even remember which was which. So that should be a great thing for you. Yeah, we just need to find whatever that streaming service is that has fights from Russia on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's uh, the Zombie Prophets Twitter feed. Okay. All That's right, what good. it is. I'm glad we found and it. And it's free. Yeah, I'm there. glad we found it. Well, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we don't record the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, sometimes MMA is going to MMA, my man. This uh, fight night main event between Davison Figueredo and Joseph Benavidez, which was meant to be for the vacant men's flyweight championship on Saturday night at UFC Norfolk. I feel like this is one that the MMA gods screwed up just because they were bored. And it really didn't even take that much effort. It was like swatting a fly, quite literally. Just hanging around, bored to tears. Hey, you know what? I'm going to screw up the men's flyweight title fight at UFC Norfolk, just, just for fun. This was really just... All the worst case scenarios. No, it's a disaster. It was a disaster from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I think if you were going to miss weight for a title fight, you're fighting for a vacant title, you're going to miss weight, not just the championship weight, but miss just any form of the weight, then by God, sir, have the decency to go out there and lose. (laughs) Don't you do this to us. Don't go out there and and knock the fuck out the guy who everybody was ready to have the feel-good moment for, the guy who actually made weight for the thing. We'd already basically crowned him the champion. You're going to go out there and knock that guy out after that? How dare you? How dare you, Jason Figueredo? Psychologically, it normally works the other way, right? Like all signs would point leading up to this thing. Like if you are Davis and Figueredo, you missed weight and now you don't have anything to fight for, right? Like everybody would think that that was the psychological way that that this was going to swing, that your motivation would have been undermined by the fact that you can now no longer win 
the flyweight title that we've gotten ourselves into one of these almost uniquely UFC situations where the title fight is only a championship bout for one guy. But the opposite thing appeared to be true with Davison Figueredo. He came out for this thing ready to rock and roll and just pretty much you know, over the course of, of almost seven minutes during, during which I will say it was kind of a great damn fight, but Davidson yeah. Figueredo, the ultimate result is that he's out here styling and profiling saying that now he's the champ, even though he's not. Yeah. And not only even just the whole missing weight and then winning the fight anyway. And the other thing that you didn't mention that the way it should work is that if you missed weight for this title fight, I assume that's only after you pushed yourself to the absolute limits of the human body in order to try to make weight. So then you should be even more compromised when you go in there. Cause I mean, if you left some in the tank, if you were like, well, I could try to cut more, but I don't know, maybe I'd feel bad. And this is not the situation to, to do that in. So you still go out there and, and win it, but also winning it kind of immediately after what has to be described as a meaningful but, you know, legitimately accidental clash of heads because that definitely played a role in things like they clash heads. It definitely clearly cuts Joseph Benavidez up immediately and there's blood gushing right away that is definitely bothering him. You can see him wiping away at it. And it's like after he makes wipe number two or three of the blood pooling at his forehead, immediately after that, he gets drilled in the face and dropped. So it's it, it's like just the perfect storm of a bunch of different circumstances that make you just want to go, oh, fuck it. Just fuck it all, man. Yeah. All right. Well, before we talk about what could be the future or lack thereof of the flyweight division, let's talk for a minute about Joseph Benavidez, because clearly this is a guy that most people inside the MMA bubble like. He's a smart guy. He's an articulate guy. He's interesting to talk to. Uh, he's married to Megan Olivi, so they have kind of like a an MMA slash UFC power couple thing going on. Uh, and he's been a really, really good 125 pound fighter for as long as they've had the 125 pound division. It has been since, uh, December of 2013 when he lost, uh, his flyweight title fight, second flyweight title fight against Demetrius Johnson that, that he got an opportunity to fight for the title. But aside from, as we talked about, uh, on Monday's show, aside from a couple of bantamweight losses to Dominic Cruz and then those two, uh, losses to to Demetrius Johnson, the greatest flyweight of all time. And then the one split decision loss to Sergio Pettis, like Joseph Benavides had been about as good as it gets at this weight. And we were all kind of surrounding this fight thinking, okay, here we go. We're going to turn the page on the flyweight division. Joseph Benavides is finally going to win the title. It's going to be this feel good moment. He's getting it a little bit later in his career, maybe than we all would like at 35 years old, but at least we will have a guy who is a like somewhat marketable, like somewhat accessible, and fun to talk to and be a guy who feels like he's actually going to stick around the flyweight division. And then this happens. And Joseph Benavides has to say he is quote unquote living in some nightmare. So uh, I don't yeah. even know what to think about him now at 35 years old. Like I said, the one downside that you could make to this probable title win for him was that it was coming along a little bit uh, late in his career. Now uh, at 35 years old, what do you think here? Are we going to, can we do it again, brother? Can we get Davidson Figueredo back in there because he missed weight and the clash of heads and do it again? Or like what happens here, especially what happens to Joseph Benavidez? I don't think, I don't, let's not do it again. Let's, I mean, we're, how much are we going to tempt the MMA gods before we just learn our lesson here? Because, man, uh, it would just seem like so anticlimactic to just be like, okay, 
well, you missed weight by two and a half pounds, so now you got to go out there and fight the guy again, and uh, we're just gonna we're gonna do it over and over until we get a result that we can live with. And I mean, it was heartbreaking to see Joseph Benavides say, for one thing, I don't know if it was a great idea to even interview him afterwards. I thought that, you know, we. I, I think you want to take it on a case-by-case basis to talk to fighters after they've been knocked out. And that one, seeing him stand there and talking about how it didn't even seem real, and you're like, well, part of that might be the head trauma that, that you clearly just suffered. and But also, it's just so raw at that moment, and you feel so bad for the guy because he is one of the really good people in this sport. But if you want – like I was against the whole shut-it-down mentality for flyweight for a while. But if you were to think about shutting it down, now would be a really good time because now you could do it without really pissing anybody off too bad. You could just, I mean, if the UFC, if Dana White came out here and you know, it's not like I'm overly sympathetic toward Dana White most of the time, but if he came out here and it was like, Hey, look, we tried, we really fucking tried, man. We did everything we thought we could do. And this shit still happened. There's still not a flyweight champion for all intents and purposes. We don't really know what to even do about crowning a flyweight champion at this point. We'll, we will grant the release of any contracted flyweight who asks for it. Everybody else who wants to go to a, move up to bantamweight, they get free passes to the buffet at the MGM Grand expires Sunday. Yeah. You know, and then let's move on from there. I, I would not hate that idea at this point. Yeah, we would all understand, right? Yeah. I mean, I yeah, guess I, mean, I feel a little bit... I'm torn on it. I understand that like if you were looking for a way out of the flyweight division and frankly for much of that division's recent history, it seemed like they were looking for the way out of for a way out of it. Like during 2019, they had cut the the roster to the point where they didn't even really have 15 eligible flyweights to fill out the the uh, top 15 rankings. And, you know, Henry Cejudo won the title and it seemed like he would might be a good uh, figure at the top of the division. Like clearly he wanted to be somewhat more purposeful about the way he marketed his fights than Demetrius Johnson was, but like almost immediately got, I don't know if you want to say blinded or preoccupied with uh, relatively larger opportunities and paydays at 135 pounds and kind of uh, abandoned the division as, as soon as he could. And so like, again, we thought we were going to get Joseph Benavides, but we didn't. So yeah, if you were looking for an excuse to pull the plug, I feel like this would be it. But I guess my questions about that are number one, like I, what would you really save if you were the UFC? I have, I have to, un, uh, I have to guess that just keeping the flyweight division around is not a big investment for the UFC. Most of these guys aren't near the top of the pay scale. And if you're planning on keeping most of them around at bantamweight anyway, like aren't you just sort of eliminating the title because nobody cares. And, and at times we find it annoying, like eliminating the division, I should say, uh, I guess if, cause my, one, one of the things that I continue to like about the flyweight division is that like, we do get kind of like awesome fights. Like even this yeah. figure eight versus Benavides fight was awesome. You know, uh, Henry Cejudo was a great performer at, at 125. Demetrius Johnson didn't pack in the fans, didn't become like a ratings draw or a pay-per-view draw, but at the same time, his technical wizardry was almost unrivaled in the history of the sport. So like, I feel still somewhat attached to the physical product that we get at 125 pounds, even if the attempts to kind of make it marketable to this point have failed. Yeah. And I mean... I, the thing that I guess bugs me is 
it should work. Like we should not have a big problem. If we can get into 135 pound fights with the right person involved with the right personalities there to kind of capture our attention, then there's no reason that 10 pounds lower should really make that much of a difference. And like you said, we have seen some really, really awesome fights at flyweight. It also just seems like cursed yeah. at this point. Well, the only thing you need is a personality, right? Don't you just need 125 pound Conor McGregor to show up and, and suddenly just like start knocking people out and wearing a suit that says fuck you all over it at that point? <laughs> like I think people probably want to watch the flyways. We just – we haven't found that person yet. But at the same time, there have really only been two flyway champions. So yeah. it's, it's not like we, we – uh we like tried out every 125 pound guy we could find and just no one garnered any attention. Like we had Demetrius Johnson, uh, who I think by, of his own admittance would probably say he didn't care all that much about being a marketable guy, at least the way the UFC tries to market people. And then we had Henry Cejudo, who I think was more marketable, but immediately decamped for somewhere else. And like, I feel like if, if we were just like, well, 125 pounds can't be marketed. That would be kind of a shame at this point. Yeah, no, you're right. Maybe Davison Figueredo is going to be the savior we've all been looking for. <laughs> well, I don't, Guy I'm not, can't put down the fork. He's going to come up here, <laughs> just blow all our damn minds. I'm not sure I would say that either. But I also wonder, like, if you do away with the flyweight division, do you take away the opportunity for some of these guys to become everything that they can be to live up to their potential, I guess would be the way to say it. Just because I wonder like, you know, previous to the introduction of the flyweight division, Demetrius Johnson was a very good bantamweight, but he wasn't yeah. probably going to be the champ. He had had some yeah. losses. He had lost, I believe to Dominic Cruz. And then you create the 125 pound division and Demetrius Johnson becomes one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. Similarly, like you had Henry Cejudo who came into the support really as a, a you know, a decorated and talented Olympic gold medalist and a great athlete and a guy who kind of understands the media. But I wonder if he would have the opportunity to mature and evolve into a fully realized MMA fighter if he had had to ha have all those fights at 135 or if being able to go to flyweight and kind of put all of his tools together helped make Cejudo the guy that he is today. I wonder if you take away the flyweight division, do you deny that path for you know, smaller guys to have a natural weight class where they can become great. Yes, maybe you do, but also maybe in the long run, not enough people care. Yeah. Well, maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a, a dedicated believer in lost causes for all I know. All right. Let, you are. Let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then uh, we can move on to round number two, Ben. I'll do my, are you fucking kidding me? Since it's, it's, flyweight related. Did you see uh, Henry Cejudo's reaction to this fight? I did not. Somehow I missed that. Mercifully so. He goes on Twitter. He's still arguing in favor of the flyweight division, which I guess you got to give him credit for. He says, at Dana White, let's keep the flyweight division great. American flag emoji, hashtag 2020, hashtag okay. I love Trump. I'm coming back down to take all their heads. Forever triple C, hashtag bend the knee. Uh, and then he also says in here, somewhere in this uh, a Twitter rant that he would quote, uh, fight ugly, those ugly detached Siamese twins, Figueredo and Benavides, both in one night. So Henry Cejudo is still out here doing his stuff. Okay. Yeah. No, now that you say this, I did see this and must have, must have just purged it from my brain as quickly as possible. But, so uh, I, I guess I'm going to say, 
Are you fucking kidding me? Like now you care to this, to this degree? Like Henry, where were you at before, man? We were trying to find you fights in this division. Now all of a sudden the, the, the belt is vacant again. So you're going to be like, keep the division going and give me that belt back. Come on, man. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Jed, why are you fucking kidding me? In what I hope is the last chapter in the saga of Tito Ortiz versus Alberto Del Rio. <laughs> uh, already more chapters than we had bargained for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here we are, still all, all these months later, and uh, now the fight is back to being a win yeah. for Tito Ortiz. Yeah. It was changed to a no decision because the Texas Athletic Commission was examining the drug test results, but then decided everything was in order there after all, that the substance that was found in Tito Ortiz's drug test sample, he had told them he was taking, and it was apparently not a performance enhancer. Are you fucking kidding me? Why you put us through all this bullshit, Texas? What the hell's the point of all? Don't you know how to just like figure some of this stuff out and decide what your position on it is before you go around telling everybody? What the fuck is this? Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? We were way too deep into our planning phase of how to help Alberto Del Rio break into Tito Ortiz's compound and steal his belt back. I'd already, I'd already went and got the blueprints. Yeah, I went and got schematics on the Ortiz compound, and now it's useless. See, in my mind, I imagine Alberto Del Rio walking away from the heist with the belt in his hands, staring at it like, "Oh, I finally got you back, baby!" And then all of a sudden, it just dissolves. Like uh, in Back to the Future, when the old photographs disappear or something, the belt just disappears from his hands. It's sad, man. It's sad all over again. Yeah. How many times do you want to break our hearts over this? A lot, apparently. A lot. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, make your choice of dance move right now. Get your crip walk on. Get your backflip on. Get down. Do the splits even in your goddamn jeans because it is almost time for Israel Adesanya versus UL Romero in a fight that has high probability for entertaining freakouts all around. It really does. And a, a fight that will also help us decide the future of the UFC middleweight division. Now, it feels like this is one of those things where a lot of us maybe are, and I say us, I really kind of mean me and maybe also you, we're kind of putting aside things that we would normally complain about the UFC doing because in this instance, it just seems like it's going to be fun as hell. Oh, you yeah. Got, you got to fight here between two of the most delightful weirdos that we could find. Right. You also got to fight here where you got one dude who's coming off two straight losses and here he is getting a title shot. And we're all looking at it going like, well, okay, we want to see Israel Adesanya fight somebody. Paulo Costa seems like the top contender, but he's not really available at the moment. Yuval Romero has the two-fight losing streak, but he always gives you a good time. And it seems like maybe we're looking at this as, hey, is he going to win anyway? Like, it, it won't screw things up too badly. They're going to go out there. They're going to put on a crazy show. Some weird shit's probably going to happen. But in the end, we'll see. The champ will still say the champ. And then the normal order of business can resume in the middleweight division. And it's exactly what we're complaining about with the UFC giving Jose Aldo a title shot uh, against Henry Cejudo at bantamweight. 
But here, it's like, well, okay, yeah, it is technically kind of some bullshit, but it's going to be some really fun bullshit. So therefore, we're into it. Yeah. When was the last time that we went ahead and presumed that we knew who was going to win a UFC title fight? (laughs) Oh, yes. Last weekend. UFC Norfolk. Norfolk. Yeah. So no, no, I'm sure that this will play out exactly as planned. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of ways here. Where you all remember, I mean, you all remember could go out there, give away the first four rounds just by dicking around, and then do a crazy flying jumping knee and knock Israel Adesanya out, and the MMA gods will cackle from on high. And that's not that hard to imagine. I guess what I'm wondering is A, what do you think the probability is of you all Romero just kind of throwing a monkey wrench in the works? And B, how big a fuck up would it be for the middleweight division right now? If you all Romero emerges from USC 248 as champion. Well, the probability I think is that he's about a two to one underdog. So just according to the odds, there's your probability. That sounds about right. It would be a fuck up, but it, again, like it would be so delightfully weird that like, like would we even really be that mad? Like if, if, if we come out of this thing with a good fight between Israel Adesanya and Yoel Romero and Yoel Romero does some kind of uh, spectacular Yoel Romero shit where he's being super lackadaisical and all of a sudden he knocks you out with a double reverse spinning flying elbow like and the the end result is that we're going to do it again like are we mad like I don't think we would be mad I think Paulo Costa would be mad but I think the rest of us would be like okay yeah I'll watch Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero again yeah well I mean so wait, that you're you're imagining a scenario here. You all Romero goes out there, knocks out Israel Adesanya, and we just say, "All right, now you got to do it again." Well, I mean, let's just say we get an awesome fight, and it results in a in a rematch. Don't you think, like, no matter what happens in this fight, if Yoel Romero were to win the championship, coming off two losses, that we would do a rematch? Like, he would have to beat Israel Adesanya from pillar to post for twenty five straight minutes for us to look at this thing and be like, "No rematch." Don't you think? I don't know. I mean. I mean, I would maybe think that his best hope or the, the best hope for a rematch would just be that kind of anything you do with you Romero after that would be a rematch. That's true. He's, just, he's fought every damn body there is to fight a middleweight, uh, except for Israel Asanya, it seems. Yeah, and if we if he was going to fight Paulo Costa next, we would uh, we would also not complain about that because they would do more weird shit like point in one direction and punch each other in the other like they did during their first fight. I mean, that's still a pretty sweet move. That is. I mean, yeah. The thing that really strikes me about this fight, Ben, is that Israel Adesanya doesn't really have to fight Yoel Romero, right? Like, he just beat Robert Whitaker to win the middleweight championship in October of last year. If he waited around for a couple more months or whatever it would take for Paulo Costa or some other arguably more deserving middleweight contender to show up. It's not like we would all be staring at our watches being like, where is Israel Adesanya? Like we've been waiting on him for months. We would all probably just kind of take it in stride. It seems like at least in the promotional lead up to this fight, part of the, of the narrative is no, no Israel Adesanya. He doesn't have to do this. He wants to do this. He wants to fight Yoel Romero. And assuming that that part is accurate. And then that is true. I feel like that's just another thing that makes Israel Adesanya kind of a special dude, man. Like you don't have to fight Yoel Romero, but as the champion, as the budding champion who like we all think can kind of be a superstar in this sport, you want to fight him, man, that's not a normal thing. 
Yeah, but then here's the other the, the flip side of that coin, as people have pointed out, especially recently, a lot of the people who went in there and spent five rounds locked in a cage with you, Romero, maybe weren't the same afterwards. What if, I mean, are, is that a risk here that Israel Adesanya goes in there, he, he impresses us by stepping up and saying yes to a very difficult and potentially dangerous challenge that he could have easily avoided. And maybe even he, he wins the fight, but does he come out of it being like, okay, a fight with Yoel Romero takes its toll on anybody, and maybe the what should be the start of the Israel Adesanya era is, is harmed a little bit by having to throw yourself against the brick wall that is Yoel Romero. Yeah, I think it's a huge risk. I think everything about it is a huge risk. It's what I've been saying about this fight since they announced it. I was, I was su- surprised by it just because, you know, you've got undefeated, up-and-coming potential superstar – Israel Adesanya, and he's going to fight Yoel Romero? Really? That seems like a huge risk of everything. Like, and as you said, even if he wins, maybe he comes out of it damaged in some way. So I think that's just another aspect of it that makes me feel like uh, this guy's a little bit special, man. This guy's a, a like a not not your normal not your normal fighter, not even your normal champion. There's just something like a little bit offbeat about him. Yeah, yeah, but I mean. Something a little offbeat about your guy, you all Romero too, which is why this one seems like, like part of the, the selling point of this fight is not just hey, here are two of the best guys in the world at middleweight, or this is going to be a fun fight. It's that man, who the fuck knows what these two guys are going to do? You got him out there, you all Romero's busting out backflips, whereas his shoe grazes Dana White's ear as he goes by uh, in the backflip on stage. That's just a pretty good reminder of like that's exactly what we're selling here. The complete unknown crazy shit possibility that this fight brings you. Just a 42-year-old man out here busting out backflips like it's nobody's like it's no big deal. Almost 43-year-old man. Guy's going to turn 43 at the end of April. I like anybody who can make Dana White make a legitimate holy shit face because yeah. you know, Dana White, he's seen a lot of stuff. Right. Like he's not not every day is Dana White seeing something that blows his fucking mind. And if you go back and watch Yoel Romero do that backflip on stage, uh, you can tell that Dana White had his goddamn mind blown by that. So I give props to Israel Adesanya for that maneuver. Did it all in jeans. That's right. Fucking jeans. Am I wrong to think? Or is it crazy for me to think that that like I felt like Yoel Romero's prospects improved against Israel Adesanya a little bit when he busted out that backflip? Where I was like, this motherfucker's <laughs> going to do a backflip. Like, he's capable of anything. Yeah, you do a backflip and then the splits in jeans. And I do have to consider the possibility that if you wanted to, you could just take off and fly through the goddamn air. Who you got here? You think Israel Adesanya pulls it off or are we in for more... Uh crazy meddling at the top of the middleweight division. You know, I can't rule out the possibility of a Yoel Romero win, but I think Israel Adesanya wins it. I think that his ability to control the distance and uh, give people problems, just getting close enough in there to where they can touch him. I think that he can put that to good use against somebody like Yoel Romero. And really the threat with Romero, I think is going to be like one big explosion and it's not like that's going to catch anybody off guard at this point. You know that he can always do that. I think Israel Adesanya will be aware of that, but I see him chipping away at your Romero and, and putting him away late. Maybe 
See, you can you can take all that technical mumbo jumbo. I'm going with chaos. I think okay. Yoel Romero coming into this fight one and three in his last four and about to turn 43 years old does something goddamn unbelievable and wins this fight. Well, Just, now you got you got me all excited. Now, I mean, I've I've been around the sport long enough to know that uh, you know UFC Norfolk happens. So here we go. Let's do it again. Let's run it back again. Yoel Romero is real out of Sonya. Chance to just like pretty much totally blow up a division. See, this is this is the cynic in you, though. This is not a this is not a bet on Yoel Romero's skills. This is a bet on everything just turning out as complicated and messy as it possibly can in the world of MMA. How dare you, sir? How <laughs> dare you call into question my true blue love of Yoel Romero? That's uh, true. You do love an old guy story. I do. It's like my favorite thing. Anyway, that's going to do it for uh, round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben... UFC women's strawweight champion Wiley Zhang comes into this fight, the co-main event of UFC 248 against Joanna Yajajic, having surprised everyone, I think, when she knocked out Jessica Andras just 42 seconds into the first round last August uh, to win the 115-pound title. She's going to go up against, in this fight, one of the better-known fighters, better-known commodities at this weight. So I guess I will open up this round with this question for you. How much do you think you know about Wiley Zhang at this point? Not that much. I, I, I think that it's hard to, to feel like you know everything you need to know. But I tell you what, the things I would tell you that I have not seen yet or that I, the questions that I have, Yoanna Yanjaychik is exactly the kind of fighter I would pick out of the whole roster and the, of the, the whole division to give us a good chance of finding out some of the answers to that. She's kind of the perfect opponent at this stage in the career in that sense. Yeah. If nothing else, I feel like we stand a good chance of finding out a lot more about Wiley Zhang here, right? Because, you know, Yoani Ajaychik, 32 years old, the former champion in this division, but uh, just two and three in her last five fights, she comes in with a, a, a pretty Yajajic style unanimous decision win over Michelle Watterson in her uh, most recent fight. But previous to that, she lost to Valentina Shevchenko and then had the two defeats to Rose Namajunas back in 2017, 2018. Of course, we put a, a, another victory over Tisha Torres in the middle of all that. But at least in our mind's eye, Joanna Yajajic has lost some of the stature that she had when she was coming up and when she was champion, when she was kind of one of the uh, undeniable forces of nature in this sport where she would just kind of had this snowball style offense where she would start picking away at you. And once she got into a rhythm, uh, it was pretty much over. She would just overwhelm you with this uh, volley of technical strikes that you, that you couldn't stop. It was like one of the more painful things to watch was someone just to get beat up by Joanna Yajajic for 25 minutes. So she comes into this fight, uh, you know, down a little bit, I think, since those days. But at the same time, like I said before, if, if Zhang Wiley is kind of an unknown here, then Joanna Yajajic is going to be a good litmus test because if she beats Joanna Yajajic, then I think we can, uh, you know, confidently and firmly move forward with her as a, a really, really uh, po powerful and 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 well ensconced champion. And if she loses to Joanna Yajajic, well, then maybe she wasn't going to hold on to the belt all that long anyway. 
Yeah. I, it does seem like one of the things that uh, Wiley Zhang has going for is she's got to be riding just a huge wave of confidence at this point. That it, it, Everything has gone your way in the UFC. She hasn't lost since like her pro debut in like 2013. So she's got to be feeling like, all right, no one can beat me. I'm going out here. Here's a, a washed up former champ. I'm going to put it on her. Really impress everybody. And she has that. And she and also has, you know, a ton of power and shit like that. But when you have Yuena and Jacek, she probably she especially lately, you haven't seen that same swagger from her in fights. She's kind of been through it a little bit. She's had the, the some of that uh supreme confidence that she used to have knocked out of her a little bit by some of the recent losses. But what she does have is that savvy, that veteran experience. She's been in some of those tough fights. She's gone out there. She's gone five rounds. She has a little bit of, like she has a little bit more of an idea of like what you're going to be in for when you show up for one of these fights. And you're, you're she's not the kind of person that you can just jump on early either and, and get out of there. So in that way, it seems like I would guess we're in for a little bit longer of a fight here. And that's when I think we're going to find out more about Wiley Zhang and what she can do. Because to me, if you're in Yen Jaychik's corner, what you got to be telling yourself is that she she's going to be tough early on, but if you can get her into the third, fourth, fifth round, that's when your experience is going to make all the difference. And that's when you're going to be able to start to kind of do the math on what you're seeing from her and pick her apart. That has to be, I would think the hope, but whether it'll work out that way is another question. Yeah. I would think that part of Yoenia Jacek must look at Wiley Zhang and be like, Oh, I remember when I was you, like yeah. I remember when I was the unbeatable champion who, uh, had stormed through all these fights and was considered like kind of like the next big thing, uh, not only at this weight, but in, in MMA, women's MMA, uh, at large. And so I would imagine that Yoenia Jacek has a little bit of a, of a chip on her shoulder here, that there might be a little bit of a, of a mental advantage that she could have. Like you said, just knowing what goes into a fight like this and knowing, uh, what it means to be this unbeatable champ who suddenly runs up against someone who's, who is better than you thought they were going to be, or it turns out that they are better than you on that night. Now, she has said in the media leading up to this fight that she is more obsessed, this being Joanna Jacek, of course, more obsessed now with getting the title back than she was, uh, when she was the champion the first time around. Do you buy that? Or do you think that that is, again, some, some kind of mental puffery, mental reinforcement here to try to get Yoannia Jacek psychologically ready to go out there and fight this fight? I mean, I could buy it. I, I don't know how much of a difference it'll make, but I, I could buy that that is the case for her. I also wonder, though, I wonder how honest she is with herself about what happens if she doesn't win this fight. Because she has kind of benefited from being one of those fighters where, okay, people know her. Uh, she won she, like her winning streak in the division is at one. And she got the title shot basically because there weren't a whole lot of other options. People still have this thought of her in their minds as she's somebody who could show up in a UFC title fight. But I, if she doesn't win this one, that might be the last one she gets. And you got to think that she knows that, right? I would wager so. I mean, Joanna Yajajic, uh, for all of the, you know, over the top kind of arrogance maybe that she displayed when she was champion for all the sort of like outwardly, uh, uh, kind of controversial stuff she said, the way that she sort of played it up when she was the champion. I feel like she is a pretty self-aware athlete. I feel like she's, you know, clearly she's been, 
through some wars. She's been in the sport for a long time. She has accomplished a great deal in the sport. She comes from the, you know, she's down there at ATT now where they have, uh, you know, tons of championship level fighters and, and, and high, high level coaches. I think that none of, none of that is going to, uh, you know, slip by her here unless it's by design some way. But I, I think like you look at this fight and what is at stake with Wiley Zhang and, and like, you know, the, if you're Yoanna Yajajic, like what you used to have, like you used to be kind of poised to be one of these like marquee stars for the UFC, maybe not necessarily like a John Jones style pay-per-view draw or anything like that. But like when she was champion, it seemed like we were all kind of gearing up to have her be not only this like longtime mainstay at that division, but also like, uh, you know, that she was going to be kind of like a UFC favorite, that she would be on the posters, that she would be at the, the like the meet and greet events, that the UFC would utilize her a lot in that role. And and to some extent it still does. But like, I do think if you're Joanna Yejicic and you look at where you are in your career, you have to look at this fight and think like, okay, this is kind of a must win for me. If I don't win this, I don't know how long any of that stuff hangs around for me. Yeah, but then imagine if she does win it and we're looking at, all right, here we go again. Yuani and Jacek is the UFC champion again. Do you think there's a little bit of like fatigue for everybody else that sets in where we go, okay, well, now what? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if necessarily fatigue is the right word, but like uh, I, I think she would have to win a few more fights in a row before we all kind of unanimously looked up and were like, okay, we are ready to accept Yuani and Jacek. Not only like – as the champion, but like kind of back to the status that she had before where it seemed like she might, you know, a prior, uh, prior to running up against uh, Rose Namajunas the first time at UFC 217, I think we all kind of thought, Oh wow, she's this dominant force. I don't know who's going to come along to beat her. Like now, of course we've seen her beat by Rose Namajunas twice by Valentina Shevchenko. So like, you know, even if she has like a very dominant performance against Wiley Zhang, I think we will have the tendency will, will be, you know, to circle back to the beginning of this round. I think the t- tendency will be for people to look at this and be like, yeah, well, how good was Wiley Zhang anyway, though, right? Like, because yeah. we didn't know that much about her. So I feel like Joanna Yajajic will have, you know, something new to prove here if she becomes champion. She'll have to run a, another little win streak together before we look at her and, and, and cast her in the same light as this supremely dominant force. Maybe she could also cool it with the uh, graphics making fun of the coronavirus shit that we're we're now all a little bit more scared of than we were back when she thought we were just going to have some fun with it. Yeah, like she's definitely had a few experiences now where where we all have wondered maybe the the less we know about these fighters, the better sometimes. She's had a few of those gaffes along the way. So uh, maybe she can clean that up too if she becomes champion again. I still – I just can't. Even if all the coronavirus stuff gets sorted out tomorrow, you know, maybe we're going to look back on you missing out as on the Arnolds as uh, th- that was the point when it all went wrong for us. Yeah. Just think about all the things, we, all the knowledge we could have gained by sending you out there and that we'll never get it now. Man, you, when you put it like that, I really feel like I let everybody down. Your deadlift max is just going to go to shit just by not <laughs> just by not being there. Like – I think you would have picked up 30, 40 pounds on that bad boy just by osmosis, just being in the room. I was counting on that, actually. Yeah. I was counting yeah. on, on those gains specifically. All right, Ben, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then uh, then we'll get out of here for this week. I'll do my just saying stuff because, frankly, it's uh, it's coronavirus-related. Did you okay. see uh, Megan Anderson 
goes ahead and pulls off a shoey down there at UFC Norfolk over the oh, weekend boy. after her win uh, at, over uh, Norma Dumont. I'm just saying, Ben, I don't know if now is the time to be drinking beer out of other people's shoes. When was the time? Well, you could make the argument there never was a time, but uh, <laughs> when we are at the doorstep of a global pandemic, I don't know, man. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm only drinking liquids out of the cleanest thing I can find. Just saying. Just saying. Drinking out of a shoe. <laughs> and man, wouldn't you feel dumb if you have to then go into the, you walk into the urgent care and got to tell them that story. Like, well, this fever started shortly after I drank beer out of a stranger's shoe. <laughs> yeah, that's probably but, one of the questions they ask you when you go in. Like, have you traveled to China recently? Have you been in contact with anyone? Have you drinking, have you had any drink, anything to drink out of a shoe? Uh, did you chug a beer out of someone's tennis shoe? And you have to, that's the question where you have to say yes. Yeah. Oh, well, my just saying stuff, uh, TMZ caught up with your boy Dana White, as they are known to do. Asked yeah, they him about. Always just know where he's going to be. It's so weird. Yeah, isn't, that, isn't that something? That's really something. Uh, they asked him what he thought of Deontay Wilder's explanation that it was the forty pounds of uh, pre-fight gear wearing walking to the uh, ring that cost him that fight. Oh boy! And Dana White thinks that maybe there is something to that explanation. He talks about guys in in the, the back in the locker room. Uh, if you think about boxing and fights when fighters are getting ready, they're in the back. They're relaxing. Some guys sleep. Some guys just lay around and chill. Then you get up. You time it out. You do your warm-up. Then you throw something on to stay warm. You don't put all this gear and all on and all this stuff. That's why I don't do any of that bullshit in the UFC. Oh, I don't that's like, why. I, I don't like any of that. Yeah, I'm just saying, okay, is that why? Yeah. Is it because you you looked into the future and you're like, you know what? If I let people just wear whatever they want, pretty soon somebody's going to put on an elaborate costume. It's going to be too heavy. It's going to sap their legs, and they're not going to be able to give their their best their best performance uh, when it counts. And Whereas, that's why. Yeah, if that's we give them some the sole reason why I have done all this other stuff. Yeah, but if we no give them reason. some high tech Reebok performance gear, then yeah. everyone is going to be at their best. No other possible explanation as to why things have ended up the way they have. I'm just saying, I don't know. I feel like maybe I could, I could come up with another why if I had to. Just saying. Just saying. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. I guess our live chat might be up in the air a little bit here, huh? For Wednesday. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see how, how the uh, whole disease situation shapes up yeah. for everybody yeah. on planet Earth. Maybe we can get the uh, the hazmat team out here to to hose down the house, and then it'll be safe for Ben folks to come over again. Maybe. Maybe. So I guess that's a cliffhanger. People will have to pay attention for the uh, Patreon live chat on Wednesday, whether or not that goes down. Uh, clearly, Tell you what, if I do come over, I'm not drinking anything out of your shoe. You can just forget about that right now. Uh, well, that now, now, is it even worth doing it then? <laughs> then I, I, you will be able to get something together, at least for the power hour on Friday. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. The only reason anybody even wants to see you come over here is to drink some, some liquor out of my shoe. I already got the shoe picked out. See, no, I I definitely don't trust that. If I come over there and I'm drinking out of the shoe, I get to pick the shoe. <laughs> okay, that seems fair. I'll line some shoes up for you. You can uh, choose the one that seems the newest or whatever. You I, don't, I don't even know what your, your, your choice would boil down to. You can pick the liquor, but I insist on picking the shoe. Okay, so and proper I, 12. I get to wander through the entire house and just... 
I'm going to see how excited you seem by each option. And if you seem like you're too into it, then I'll, I'll know that there's something tricky. But you tipped your hand though. Now, now I'm going to do some reverse reverse psychology on you. But see, I knew that you would do that. So now I'm watching the both directions.